We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. We are so excited to have you back as our listening guest to hear more from Katie as she continues to share about her son Carter and provide awareness surrounding the chromosomal anomaly called trisomy 18 or Edwards syndrome. Before we continue, I'd like to let our listeners know that some hard subjects are discussed today about Carter's death and some of the very brave and very difficult decisions Katie made on behalf of her son, Carter. This conversation is intended to allow others who have experienced similar journeys to know that they are not alone as they grieve, and to give others who have not experienced making these decisions a very small glimpse into the life that she lives always missing her son. Once again, we thank you for being brave and learning more about one family's experience with Trisomy 18, And we hope you'll always be brave and present if a friend would like to talk about her child who only lives in her heart. You are home now. You you are you are getting better at the NG tube, um, which I am baffled that they only had three and the education could have been better, obviously, on how to do all of that. And you did mention earlier that you had to go back and forth to the ER by ambulance. Um, Talk a little bit about uh, maybe some of those times that you ended up calling an ambulance. The very first time that it happened, this is actually going to probably be my very first time actually vocalizing this to anyone other than my husband. So the very first time that it happened, we had been home from the NICU for four days. For some reason, we, I mean, he had a vehicle, we had two vehicles, but for some reason I had to take him to work. And I really still don't remember why, but I had to take him to work. Woke up, got ready, had a great morning, fantastic morning, lovely morning, actually, and put Carter in the car seat and took Dylan to work. Not very far away, like 15 minutes, maybe, if that. Checked on him, which I did consistently, constantly, like obsessively checking on my child, Um, but checked on him right as we dropped Dylan off before we were heading home, and he was fine. It was sometimes kind of hard to tell if he was fine, though, because he did turn blue a lot, and he did kind of always just look like, you know, half there, half not. And so it was kind of hard to tell. And But so I, what I would do is I would just watch him for a second. Like, I would just, like, stare. So I checked on him before we left. He was okay. Blue as usual, but he was okay. And so we get home, and I start grabbing my things. And then I go to get him out of the car seat and, and I didn't realize until, so, so I unbuckle him and he still just, he looks, he always looks, which is terrible, but he looked like he always looked really, didn't really look like anything was a different, but I pull him out of the car seat and he just like flops over my shoulder. And then I could feel that he wasn't breathing. And so it was really so hard to tell when he was like, okay. And, and when he wasn't because he always looked super not okay. So it was really, really, really hard to tell. And so, but that that was the way he, I mean, because he was not, his muscles were, I mean, he just flopped over my shoulder. And so I ran inside and I spilled coffee everywhere. My dogs are going nuts. And I 
tossed him down on the couch and I'm like trying to do what we were taught in the NICU to like open his airway whenever he has trouble breathing. Like you like hold their chin and their neck a certain way. Anyway, so I was trying to do that and I'm like holding him and I'm trying to open his airway and I'm like, everybody could probably hear me screaming and I'm like, no, 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 like freaking out. So I'm like, this is it. This is the moment. This is it. And so I call 911 and I, I didn't, I had not started giving him CPR yet because I, nobody taught me how to do that before we left the NICU. Nobody taught me how to give my kids CPR. So I call 911 and like, ma'am, there's gotta be something in his throat. There's gotta be something in his throat. And like talking to me. And then she's like talking to me, like I've done something wrong. And like, and I was like, I am just respectfully, ma'am. I know what's wrong with my child. He's not breathing. Can you please just send someone? He's not breathing because he's a sick baby. I kept saying, he has trisomy 18, he has trisomy 18. And she was like, just dig something out of his throat. He's got to be choking on something. I was like, lady, he's not choking on something, but please, just please. Then she starts trying to walk me through giving him CPR. And I don't think I was doing it right. I'm pretty positive I was not doing it right that first time because I had no idea what I was doing and I was really scared. And you can't really be scared when you're giving someone CPR like that's not you can't be scared and so I'm like doing the best I can and then the officer walks in they sent an officer before they sent an ambulance I don't know why or maybe that was just like he could get there faster I don't know but anyways the officer shows up and then the officer takes him and he's giving him CPR and at first treating me like I was suspicious and then the firemen showed up and they kind of were a little bit too until one of them one fireman stepped outside and looked it up trisomy 18. So I tried to tell everyone, no one knows what it is. They don't know. And they just see this baby not breathing and they think the mother's done something wrong. And I was like, y'all were treating me like I was suspicious. And he was like, I know, I know we were like, I'm sorry. You got to understand how often these kinds of situations are that way. And I was like, cool, but that didn't feel awesome. And so, so yeah, so then they sat down and, and like leveled with me. And then we went outside and um, was going to get in the ambulance and one of the firefighters actually pulled me aside and he gave me a hug and, and said that he, he had a son, um, who was three years old and had just passed away last year. Um, so yeah, that was, that was the in most insane experience the first time that that happened because it was like everybody was coming for me. I didn't know what I was doing. It was terrifying. So then we get him in the ambulance and we go to take off. Vitals are normal. Everything is fine as if nothing had ever happened. <laughs> Which it, he did that a lot. Like he would just crash and then be totally fine. Totally fine. Happened so often. So then that's when we had that ER doctor. So we get there, they take us into the ER and they also are starting to do the same thing. Like I've done something wrong because we're there because my baby quit breathing. And <laughs> the doctor was like, okay, well, hold on. I'm going to have to go look that up. You know, they what they did was they pulled up probably something on their computer that was dated to like the 70s or 80s about how these babies die and was like, why are these people even here? The baby's just going to die. So that was the first first time that I had to call 911 because Carter quit breathing. And, and it was horrible because I'm just like trying to keep my kid alive and everyone's like assuming I've done something to make this happen. It tells you exactly how, how messed up this world is that our first responders are always thinking that's why they're there to help is because someone did something wrong. So how many times did, did Carter end up going to the ER by ambulance? Twice before the last one. So three total. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, um, 
the last one, uh, he he did. So there there were a couple of things too about all of that, like uh, being in the ambulance. The first time they had me in the back with him, um, because and and they they said the exact words to me. They were like, "You're gonna know how to care for him better than we are because we don't even know what this is, right?" And they they were absolutely right. Couldn't have been more right. And so I sat in the back with him. Every time after that, uh, they did not let me. And and they're like yell hollering at me like through the little window as I'm sitting in the front seat, like asking me all of these questions and all these things. And I'm like, could I just come back there? Because like that would make more sense. I should probably just be back there. No, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. And so, yeah. So the other two times um, and, and the last time, uh, which was when the heart monitor went off. So my uh, my stepmom was over visiting and we were having a wonderful time and it was fantastic. And an aunt of mine uh, that lived very far away had gotten to come down and uh, see Carter for the first time. And um, it was, he was, it was he, like, he was having one of the best days he had had. Like he had been doing really, really good that day. I don't think there was ever a time where I really had to worry if he was breathing. And that was the day that we got the heart monitor. And so that gave me a little bit more peace of mind. And so we ordered Ted's. Ted's is amazing. Who doesn't love good Mexican food, right? So we ordered. And I go, <clears throat> I go to the door to grab the food. And Dylan and my stepmom go outside on the back porch. We had also taken Carter outside that day, too, earlier in the day. We took him outside and just kind of held him on the porch for a little while because it was just a beautiful spring day in Oklahoma and it was awesome. And it was, I was just like, I want to take him outside. I want him to go outside. He's going to love it. And so anyway, so they had stepped out um, the back door with the dogs and I went to grab the food. And as soon as I set the food down on the table, his heart monitor started going up and I had absolutely no idea what that thing was going to sound like, but it was so loud. Probably everybody in the neighborhood could have heard it. It, it was it, I would have loved to have had that thing the rest of the two weeks that he was home because I probably would have slept a little bit because I would have known I would have been woke up if there was a problem. But so um, it goes off and, and he looked fine at first, which was the weird thing. So like it, it was good. Like it detected that there was a problem like immediately because he still seemed fine as it was going on. Um, but then I'm like, you know, freaking out. I'm like, what's going on? So what's going on? And I grab him and I try to figure out what's going on. I listen to his heart rate. It's getting pretty low. And, um, and then now he's starting to kind of get a little bit lethargic. So I'm like, all right, let's call him again. So call 911. And, uh, they asked me what his vitals were. And I told him and, and then, you know, they were freaking out again. Anyways, it's never awesome calling someone whenever that happened. But so the same firefighters um same firefighters and paramedics that we got just they came and um once we got him in the ambulance he actually didn't start getting any better um and kind of just like stayed the same i think he would stable out maybe for a minute and then start crashing again and so it wasn't like that last time it wasn't where he just kind of crashed and then came back like nothing ever happened he he was really really unstable really really unstable and i have no idea it came out of nowhere they take us into the er and um we had a, a different er doctor that time and i'm not really sure 
as the others of like, mm, your baby's just going to die because she did listen to me. And then I don't really know what ended up happening, like how we ended up where we did, but um, they were just trying to get blood from him. So like, that's all we had really done at that point. They were just trying to get blood from him. They didn't do anything else uh, to help him. They didn't put him on any oxygen or, or anything like that. Nothing to help him. They were just trying to get blood from him. Couldn't get any blood from him and they didn't stop. They tried everywhere. They literally tried everywhere. They tried his hands, his feet, his legs, his arms. They tried his head. They tried everywhere. They went and they got the ultrasound machine thing to see even like deeper veins or whatever, however that works. And they still couldn't get any blood from him. So then they sent him up to the PICU. This is, I would say, at least an hour's worth of time. And then they take us up to the PICU and, and the, the doctor, as soon as we got up there, he was like, I'm not really sure what we can do for you guys up here because you have a DNR. And I was like, listen, I don't care. Pretend it doesn't exist. Let's sit down and have a conversation. What are our options? What do we do? And um, he was like, okay, okay, okay. So like he went back to the counter and I don't know, did some things and then came back in and sat down. And before he talked to us, he asked me and Dylan if we wanted a picture taken. And so he took, he, he took two pictures of me and Dylan with Carter. And then he started to ask it and it's really weird how this happened because this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier like as far as the whole DNR thing goes is like anything can happen anything can change in like at the drop of a dime so whenever they were trying to get blood from him I looked at Dylan and I said we're going to have to decide how much longer we're going to let this happen and and he knew what I was talking about and and so um like we were gonna have a conversation about it if we were just gonna talk about it and, and we didn't we didn't ever get to talk about it and then they sent us up to the PICU and um you know this this is like 15 minutes after I had made the comment we're gonna have to decide how much more of this we're going to allow to happen and then we go up to the PICU he starts to ask me if I want to put him on a ventilator and I say no before he even finished this sentence I didn't think about it Dylan and I didn't have a conversation about it nothing I in, in one teeny tiny simple moment, I just said, no, we're not doing it. We're not doing it because I'm tired of watching him go through this. I, he can't do this anymore. They literally just used this poor baby as a pincushion. He has no blood left in him. The amount of times he's gone into cardiac arrest, what his brain function is at this point, the torture that he keeps going through because of this, like, no. No ventilator. He's a teeny, 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 tiny little five-pound baby. No ventilator. And I also, in that moment, I think just really, truly felt like he he wouldn't that that it. Then I would end up having to make the decision again and make the decision to have to take him off of it. He probably wouldn't have ever been able. Maybe he could have. I will live the rest of my life with that. What if? I will live the rest of my life in in. A, a moment, one teeny tiny moment without ever putting any thought into it. I just said no. And so, um, yeah, we called our family and, uh, it was one of the most insane things I've ever seen in my life because all at the same time, one of the worst things imaginable and one of the absolutely most amazing things imaginable was happening at the same time. Our family, our very, very 
complicated and and some hateful family both of us like really complicated blended families all of them packed into this tiny room with each other and we're there putting out into the world nothing but love to everyone in the room everyone there the most amazing thing imaginable while also the worst thing imaginable at the same time for hours we experienced this and i think it didn't take long for me to really kind of just like slip out of reality and um i i i was not on this earth really like I mean I was but I I was not I I slipped very far away from reality so far away from reality and and it was the craziest thing um I think I think I kind of like uh left <laughs> with him for a minute and and yeah it just really wasn't there and um he it took so long. It took hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Uh, because he, he kept like trying to get stable again, which was really insane. And, and we, uh, we let the nurse, I, I, I'm going to say this the right way this time because I usually don't. I usually say, Oh, we just overdosed our baby on morphine, which is terrible. And I should, never say that again but i do say it we didn't we let the nurse continuously give him more and more morphine because it, he definitely i mean he was not okay he was hardcore struggling to breathe and and things like that but so over the course of a couple hours we essentially stopped his heart just a lot of morphine but uh that is probably one of the hardest things to take that I, I, I essentially, I mean, I aided in the process of stopping my child's heart with morphine. Um, normal, I guess, kind of, but not, I mean, not normal, but like, uh, that happens. And, and it's, it's not like it's some crazy out of this world, like, oh my God, that should have never happened. Like, that's the way it works. I just think that maybe I didn't ever know that that was the way it works. And I think maybe I still don't like that that's the way it works. And it just feels a little bit. Yeah, that's probably the hardest thing. And for Dylan, too, for both of us, that's coming out of the whole entire thing, whole experience, every crazy twist and turn that we went around, hardest one to take. And I honestly don't know if that's how that should have happened or not. And I don't really want to know because if it's not, I don't want to know that. So, um, that little glimpse of what you were able to provide us, the little bit of understanding that we can um, hold on to or or just grasp, I guess, is is that you still carry a lot of that with you. Um, there are decisions that you made on behalf of your son that you still carry with you. Well, and, you know, the thing is, is, is these are the things that I don't talk about. These are the things that, that people cringe and run the other way if I do talk about. Because um, uh, people don't like hearing that. Those those few things there, the having to give my kids CPR and the uh, not putting them on a ventilator and 
I've been working and, and those things. And, and I spend a lot of time afterwards uh, because, you know, I, I've, as we all know, I've never been one to really just like keep my mouth shut and not tell everyone everything. That's not, not my thing. I'm not made for that. And <laughs> so everyone knew what we did. Um, and uh, I, I dealt for a really long time with a lot of backlash for that. Um, and I had some really horrible things happen to me in some Facebook groups that I was a part of for, you know, like to create this community of families going through either trisomy 18 or trisomy 18 and 13, or there was even some that were like just trisomies of all the kinds. And, you know, that's great so that we can all, like, love each other and be a community, right? That's fantastic. I'm, I'm all for that. Um, until it was a problem that I chose. And, and they say, and I don't really like it because I think it's wrong. I, I, think, I think it's so wrong. I think everybody looks at it the wrong way. They call it choosing comfort care over life or whatever. Um, I didn't choose anything. <laughs> didn't choose anything. I, in one moment, just told the doctor, no, please don't put my kid on a ventilator. If that just sounds like he's been through enough already. And that sounds like a lot. It's not very nice. So let's not do that. And I don't think that my brain was even able to, in that moment, fully comprehend that that meant that this was the last time I was going to see him. I, I don't think that happened. I didn't choose in that moment for my kids to die, I just chose that I just watched him be pulled like 15 times. He's miserable and I don't really want to put him through any more pain. I, my brain didn't know what that really meant. So I, I dealt with a lot for a long time and, and I, I kind of like pulled out a little bit because I was like, I did this horrible thing. Everyone hates me for it. I killed my kid. I, I, I really would say that a lot. And I think believed it for a little while um because of everything that I was put through with that and how much I was seriously just you know shoved aside and between that and um me vocalizing my my issues with my faith and things like that that I was going through and I, I just really lost almost everyone in my life uh for all of those things, for str for struggling and and for choosing to not put my kid in any more pain without being able to fully comprehend what that really meant for us and having to make decisions. I mean, judging a lot of people just judging me on having to make decisions that they probably would have absolutely no idea how to handle either. So yeah, <laughs> um, I don't talk about these things much anymore because of that. I don't make light of you sharing this here in this um in this way and obviously anything you have said up to this point if we if you end up wanting to take it out we can i i just want to be very clear i i from this nobody come to me and i hear so horrible or whatever and like if they want to listen to it they can and if they don't like something they're hearing they can turn it off i the thing is is that i just know how incredibly bothered other humans are like hearing these things and so I just don't talk about it and and like you know I am the person to just really talk about everything to everyone and that's changed for for a really long time as far as this goes and I'm it 
kind of in a transition point in my life where if I feel like I want to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it. And if whoever it is that I'm talking to decides they don't want to hear what I have to say anymore, they can either tell me they don't want to hear it or get up and walk away or like whatever. But I'm not going to contain like all of me and just like pull up and stay away from people because I'm worried that I might say the wrong thing. So uh, talking about it is good because it's real and it's my life. Like, you know, if you go to the dentist and have a root canal and, you know, like that's, that's a tough experience, right? To go through. You don't just not tell people about it. You go, you tell people about it. You talk about it. Yes. I had a root canal one time. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, it's, but it took a long time to get to this point. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405 271 5072